welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe, a researcher on the project and a public historian. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities learning resource from Ulster University. It aims to map the changing experience of infection and disease for individuals and communities in the unique urban environment of Belfast from the 19th century to the present day. On today's podcast, I talk to local historian and tour guide Mark Doherty about Clifton House and how it cared for its residents. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in Clifton House and its work? Hello, Tom, and thank you very much for the invitation to speak on this fascinating subject tonight. I am a qualified engineer. Um, that's um, the education I chose and the career I followed. But throughout that, I had a deep and abiding interest in history, particularly local history. And there's nowhere more inspiring in the local history in my hometown of Belfast than Clifton House. Um, there's the development of Belfast is inextricably linked with the history of this fascinating building and the Belfast Charitable Society that built it. So I took a, uh, I was taking an interest in all aspects of Belfast history, and I went on a tour of Clifton House um, on Culture Night, a wonderful annual event in September in Belfast. Uh, unfortunately, stopped in recent times due to COVID, and there was a free tour of Clifton House as part of that, and it was a thoroughly inspiring tour. The content of the tour and the beautiful environment of that building and the attached cemetery as well. So that got me hooked. And then I saw they were looking for tour guides. I'd already done a little experience in tour guiding as well. I applied and was interviewed and was delighted to be accepted onto a course where I was trained to be a professional tour guide. Um, and anticipating your question um, about what sort of guide, I'm a white badge guide for Clifton House. That means we are Myself and my colleagues are trained by a recognised um, body, the Irish, the, sorry, the International Tour Guide Association, to both um, have a broad knowledge of that um, institution, but also quite a bit beyond that as well, and to be trained in the many important aspects of good guiding. So, so. Today, we're going to talk about Clifton House and how it looked after the health of its residents. But before we get into that subject, could you tell us what Clifton House is, where it's located, its purpose and its founding? Right. Well, I need to go back to a very specific date, the 28th of August, 1752, to an inn, a pub called the George in Belfast. On that date, 19... Gentlemen, um, wealthy and learned gentlemen from Belfast, 18 of them Presbyterians, and uh, the religion is important to this story. And one member of the established Episcopalian Church, who happened to be in the meeting as well, their aim was to do something concrete for the impoverished citizens of Belfast. This could have been prompted by, there were famines, of course, the potato famine in the 1840s is uh, very well known and recognised. There were famines of nearly a similar magnitude a century earlier, in the 1730s and the 1740s. 
And the well-off citizens of Belfast would have seen some um, horrendous um, disease and poverty, particularly people coming in from the, the countryside and feeling somewhat helpless and, and to, uh, on a society scale to do anything to help. The town corporation of Belfast was at that stage completely ineffective in helping its citizens the, uh, of, at, at, at every level. But this, of course, was um, of most concern for the, the poorest citizens in the town. So they decided that they would raise money to build an infirmary and a dispensary and a church. It actually took them nearly 20 years to succeed in doing this. And they raised money through a lottery scheme. So this was a bit of a bumpy ride, but eventually they got there and they raised enough money to start constructing their own hospital, infirmary, poor house. It went by all of those names at the time. So if you see this building, if you're fortunate enough to visit Belfast and to walk into the grounds of this building, you will see a very harmonious Georgian Palladian building. If you did not know what it is, you might assume it's somebody's grand country house. That's a significant observation because it makes a statement. This is a poor house, but it is designed to the highest of standards. And the, the statement being made is that people of any class in society or whatever position in society deserve to have a comfortable, um, well-appointed place to live in. So the building itself is making a strong statement through its architecture, particularly if you think of workhouses, which was a very different phenomena that came along later, workhouses were a very, very different thing than this. This was a charitable endeavour, and the aim was to holistically care for the, the poorest, most impoverished people in our society. And so did that care include actually looking after their health needs? And if so, how did it do that? Well, firstly, it's a very different society and it's hard to get ourselves into the mindset then. The, the social standards, the moral standards of that time were very different, extremely different. So it's very hard to relate it directly with our experience and what we assume as our standards. Then there was no safety net whatsoever. Nothing. For people who were very poor, they begged in the streets um, and if they starve, so be it. It meant even have been someone there to bury them. So the, the impetus was to give dignity to these people and to develop their lives and not just their health, their, most, their obvious health needs, but to give them dignity within themselves and a place in society. The aim was not to spend their lives in the poor house, though indeed many, particularly the mentally ill, for instance, or the, the physically disabled may well have done. The aim was to develop these people and to um, make them fit to go out into society again. In the early days, I don't think they were as successful as, that, as they were in later times, as they developed, as the awareness of social responsibility developed in society. But certainly the aims were... Um, very altruistic indeed, and the, the, this organization, I'm proud to say, still exists to this day, fulfilling the same basic need of giving holistic care to the um, deserving people of Belfast, which is holistic care goes beyond just basic health. It's mental health, it's education, it is um, interfacing with your environment, getting exercise. There's a whole range of other aspects to health than a simple basic physical health. 
So what sort of person ended up in Clifton House uh, in the early 19th century, for instance, and how did this sort of service user, to use a rather unpleasant modern term, change in terms of social status and demography over the course of the 19th century? The initially, it set up as an institute to hold up to 70 residents. Um, very quickly, that was seen not to be enough. It was, uh, it was filled in a very short period of time. And contrary to their initial intentions, they took in children simply because they had to. You know, if they were taking in impoverished parents, they would have their children with them. So the intention wasn't for it to be a children's home per se, or to tend for children. But these were, these were philanthropists who wanted to do good for people, so they found it hard to turn people away. But they had to, they had very limited means, and they were um, stretched, um, both facilities-wise and financially, throughout a, a large proportion of the existence of the charitable society into the modern era. So they had to, people had to apply and be approved to stay. And, you know, they had to limit the amount of people who come in. So I think there were a lot of hard decisions to be made there. And over time, they did, in fact, extend the building on many occasions. And eventually, they built a separate children's block at the back as well. So initially, there were no social standards from central government, even from local government, um, to for their criteria for people to go into this poor house. It was purely a private charity, and so it was up to them. So they had to make their own call on that. By the time, of that, that was early 19th century, by the end of the 19th century, this had transformed fundamentally from the 1840s government across the UK, because of course Ireland is a fully integrated part of the UK at that stage, the whole of Ireland, um, they had set up commissions for most aspects of society. There were education commissions, there was water commissions, um, there, was, um, there was a poor commission as well. So central government had started taking more responsibility on a society-wide basis for organising the care of its citizens. Government was beginning to get responsible beyond it being a, a rigid class society, looking out for the richest of people. So by the end of the 19th century, the function had changed. By that stage, there, were, uh, there was provision for, for instance, they developed hosp a hospital system. Um, there had been, um, I'd mentioned just in passing the uh, the workhouses, there were workhouses as well. Um, there was a fully functioning education system at three levels. All of this and, and the other things didn't exist at, in the early days of the poor house. So by the end of the 19th century, two ways that it had changed fundamentally. No longer did they um, shelter children because there was specific provision for both the health of children and the education of children outside of the poor house by that time. Also, they started to focus um, towards the end of the 19th century more on caring for old people because there, there was a bit of a gap there. Um, it was a society before um, there was pensions, for instance. So people who couldn't care for themselves because they were financially impoverished due to whatever life they led or fell through the safety nets that had been established in society, there was still somewhere for them to go. So how does Clifton House differ from the union poor houses which uh, emerge in the 1830s as a result of the, the various poor laws that come into uh, force across the United Kingdom? A very 
good question indeed. And there's often confusion between the poor house, as Clifton House was called until after the Second World War, and a workhouse. A workhouse was not established for the holistic care of its residents. The workhouse was uh, established to try and in some ways deal with the enormous poverty and hardship in Ireland, but the workhouse was designed to be a forbidding place. The food was not great. You were forced to work hard. Men would have to break rocks and pick old rope, pick oakum. Um, women had to, do, to toil um, in laundries and doing um, needlework, etc. Um, families were divided. The workhouse was not designed to be attractive in any way. Um, it was a pitiful place. You had to be in a very bad place in your life to want to go into the workhouse, you know, because it was not designed to be an attractive place to develop people. It was designed as a basic minimum to keep you alive, but to be an unattractive place. It was a very basic building as well. There were no, um, all of the, for instance, the dormitories in it were all completely segregated, men and women and children. Uh, it was just boards with um, straw mattresses on it. So it was designed um, in a, with, a, with a very, very different ethos to the poor house, the, specifically the Belfast poor house, which was a very local initiative. And it um, was inspired, it's a very important aspect of it, it was inspired by the Belfast Enlightenment. So in the second half of the 1700s, particularly the Presbyterians of Belfast were deeply influenced by the philosophical teaching of the, um, some of the great minds of that era. Francis Hutchinson in Scotland being a particular case in point, and even more so Thomas Paine, the great philosopher and social um, reformer who lived in, he was an Englishman who spent time living in America and France, and he had a vision for transferring, forming society to the benefit of all. This deeply affected the educated um, merchant class in Belfast, who set themselves very high standards to try and achieve equality in society for all, of all um, men, women, children, people of all religions. In fact, it even extended to the abolition of slavery. So this was a very enlightened people. And I'm very proud to say that the, the poor house, Clifton House in Belfast, stands as a monument to these people and their ideals. And it is a delight to see that that building, as it stands today, would be instantly recognisable to these people who helped bring it about, because the facade of it is unchanged. So how did Clifton House care for the health and well-being of its residents? What sort of mental services did it offer? Okay, well, whenever it opened until that time, and again, the standards are very different. There'd been never been any hospital of any sort in Belfast. Um, no, a, a few small private schools, that was all. So when Clifton House opened, it was referred to in the maps of that time as a hospital as well. It is the first identifiable hospital we had. It serves the, um, the function of being a residence for deserving poor. Also, there was a, an infirmary aspect. So there was visiting doctors as well. Also, it, um, it also functioned as our first dispensary, our first pharmacy, such as it was in, in, in those early days. So that was really revolutionary for the, the, the small town of Belfast at that time. And there's, there's one person in particular 
I'd like to highlight in that regard, um, Dr. William Drennan, a product of the Belfast Enlightenment, a fascinating man in many, many ways, but I will concentrate on his, um, his interest in healthcare as a very enlightened and articulate and learned doctor. Um, there were two things uh, of note. In 1782, it was noted in uh, the Poor House records that he was encouraging inoculation with small with cowpox to prevent smallpox. He, he recognized this and thought it was very important um, because smallpox was such a debilitating um, condition that was very common in society at that time. I only found out recently that he wasn't the first in the poor house to have recognized this. Five years earlier, it had been talked about as well, but um, it wasn't effectively carried through. And neither was it effectively carried through when he was pushing for it. It wasn't until Edward Jenner um, really brought to prominence the effectiveness of this, the cowpox vaccine that it, it finally became standard practice to vaccinate in that manner. And that wasn't until nearly 20 years later. So um, there was some very enlightened thinking from Dr. Drennan. But um, what I think even of more note, a very, very simple aspect of healthcare, he was, he was noted to have said um, to wash and be clean is a motto that should be over the door of every hospital. He considered that cleanliness to be one of the most important aspects of healthcare above any other. That was in an era when nobody understood what a virus, a bacteria, uh, what, what these creatures were. Um, uh, so there was no understanding of how these things transmitted at all, but he recognized the importance of cleanliness. And that really is a theme throughout the history of the poor house as well. Reading the minutes, you do see these matters being discussed regularly. And this brings me to another, the other person I would like to mention in regard to the poor house, and that is Marianne McCracken. Today is the 251st anniversary of her birth. Um, we had intended um, in Belfast to have celebrated this last year, but due to our COVID pandemic, it didn't happen at that time. So that has been um, celebrated and commemorated this year. And Mary Ann, her uncles were the main two men responsible for the poor house being built, um, her uncle Robert and her uncle Henry. And from a very young age, from before, from when she was barely able to walk, and I may see she was born in 1770, the poor house was completed in 1774. So by the time she was four, five, six years old, she was going into the poor house and helping the children in there. Her uncles, of course, were a great positive influence on her, and it was instilled in her from a very young age to help her others. She lived to be 96 years old, and she let her desire to help the less fortunate in society lead her life. So um, um, she was, um, I could talk at very great length about her and her philanthropic good works. She was so far ahead of her time in many, many ways. And she was, um, she helped to establish the separate women's committee in the poor house because she thought women and particularly children needed more attention. It was a very male dominated society at that time and her as a child of enlightenment had been educated as an equal with, um, with her siblings, her brother's siblings as well and she got, had a great independence of mind 
And she used that, her independence of mind and clear thinking to help others. And some good examples from which you can read from the minutes. We, we still have all of the records right back to 1752, Tom, which is a fantastic resource um, to study. And you can see her in the minutes talking about like how much soap per person per month, what weight of soap would be needed for you to be properly cleaned. Um, discussing the children's clothing. They, not have, they do not have substantial enough clothing for winter and they need particular types of clothing. Um, a, a very interesting point. Let me see if I can actually find it. I was reading it earlier. Very, again, these simple things that they take for granted now um, made a big difference um, whenever they're recognised then. Um, she said, the ladies take the liberty to recommend that the nursery children be allowed half a pint of sweet milk per day as conducive to health and strength. Well, what's that about? Sweet milk is the normal full cream milk that we know of. Children in those days were given buttermilk. Buttermilk was really the watery leftovers from turning milk into butter. It had lost most of its nutrients. So she was pushing for the fact that children needed to have good nutrition. They were taking care of them. And this small act is really a very significant act in improving the health of those children. So indeed, after her proposing that, Three days later, it was noted in the minutes that half a pint of sweet milk was ordered for each of the nursery children. Which brings me to another point, education. She pushed to set up a nursery for children. She, virtually two centuries ago, Tom, she pushed for the importance of a nursery school for children. Can you imagine that? So far ahead of her time, not only did she set that up, she ensured that they, they learned music, that they got exercise outdoors, that they went down and went swimming in Belfast Lock. She took them on day trips to Bangor and Donahadee. She developed a playground. She thought they needed a playground. So she had one built in the grounds, uh, in the gardens in front of the poor house. This woman really covered, like um, if she saw the modern world it is, um, and the nursery standards that we have now, this is the realization of what she um, achieved then for the period of time of her involvement in the poor house. So this is really revolutionary stuff. It, it is, and it's unfortunate that this was a... Um, that the effects were only local. These people did good work, but this was not government policy. This was not even town corporation policy. This was enlightened private individuals doing their best for society, but it was on a small scale. So it was local and the impact was very real. But this was people doing things right um, uh, under their own initiative as a collective of people. You know, un unfortunately, this did not pervade across society. That has been evolving over time and is still evolving. And, if, and I would consider the ideals of enlightened Belfast to still not have been fully achieved in Belfast. These people were, and, and I know there were, there were similar minded people in pockets, I'd say, um, in, in most of the Western world at that time, but these were people operating in small cells on their own. So their impact was very real, but only with a limited scope. Was the poor house actually effective in protecting people's health, for instance, during the cholera outbreaks in the 1830s, uh, and for instance, during some of the typhus and disease that came with the um, famine during the 1840s? Yes, um, Tom, um, of course, this is very relevant with um, the, the world wrestling with COVID at present, and cholera is a very good case to look at. 
Um, cholera, it had, it had been existing in India in the maybe 1817, sometime around, around then. So that, that, this disease was known. Um, when we come into the late 1820s, 1830s, it had, it had started to spread into Europe. So there was good knowledge of um, how horrendous this, um, this disease would, can be. Um, and, um, and the mortality rates could be very high, but also that it was advancing across the globe, essentially. So whenever it came to Belfast, um, 1832, um, Belfast was ready. I'm, I'm surprised. I even have read a um, snippet of a newspaper from that era, and they were actually reporting the number of infections, the number of people who had died across society, which I thought was I was surprised that they were that organized, if it is, was indeed as organized as it looked on paper. But the poor house in particular, um, they had a plan in place for its arrival. So they, so they were not caught out in any way by this. They knew of the implications and that they had to do something about it. So um, I was reading up on it earlier as well. Um, and it was recognized, I'll just read a little bit that was said at the time about it. It sometimes is contagious, sometimes after the death of one or more objects of its withering power, it unexpectedly disappears. For the most part, the aged, feeble and intemperate are its victims, but often the strong, the moral, the regular and the temperate of both sexes sink under its desolating ascendancy. I just thought it was um, rather interesting wording. So um, they knew exactly what was coming. And in the case of the poor house, the committee acting on the advice and opinion of the physicians resolved that on the first appearance of epidemic cholera in Belfast, the gates of the institution should be shut and the inmates strictly confined within the enclosed ground. So this is in fact what they did. When they heard of the first um, example in Belfast, they closed the gates. Now, not only did they close the gates, there were only certain people allowed in, members of the committee, the physicians um, and authorized people. At one point, infection did get in. It was actually one of the grave diggers. And we'll come to talking a little more about the cemetery as well, I assume, in a short while. Um, they recognized this and isolated him. There were four cases in the poor house over the whole of this period. They actually improved the standards of nutrition. They made the food better because they thought everyone needed to be better bolstered against this. And the mortality rate in the poor house actually decreased during the cholera epidemic when the death rate in Belfast was, in spite of precautions taken, still rather high. Now you mentioned the graveyard. That's really interesting. Now, the graveyard is, is something which I, I've always been intrigued by. Now, did they suffer from grave robbers at all at Clifton House? Yes, yes. Firstly, I'll explain a little bit about the origin of the cemetery. Um, I only learned recently myself, a graveyard is specifically attached to the church. This one is not. It's, it's, it was Belfast's first um, independent graveyard with, without a church, and hence it is a cemetery rather than, um, and then a graveyard, which is um, interesting to understand the terminology. There were two reasons to open it in the poor house. Um, one of them was... Um, to have somewhere to bury the dead. Due to the nature of the work they did, death was a regular occurrence. Indeed, many times, many, many times, uh, 
poor people would turn up with their dead and ask them if they could bury them because they had not the money nor the means to do it themselves. So they recognized that they needed their own burial ground. Another aspect, being practical people that they were, is to raise money. So they actually sold the better plots, being um, the ones around the walls and the ones closest to the path, to the wealthy in society and for a very good price as well. So this actually raised them a considerable sum of money. So this cemetery had both the wealthiest people in society in it and the, the poorest people as well. So we have wonderful old monuments to the great and the good, as they were so seen at the time. And we also have the poorest ground with many thousands of people who were buried en masse in, an, in a very large unmarked grave. So what about, what about grave robbing? Was that an issue in the cemetery? Grave robbing was an issue across society in the early years of the 19th century because um, the only right, um, anatomy was developing. Everyone was finally catching up with Leonardo da Vinci and realising that they needed to study anatomy. You know, just many, 300 years later was that, uh, um, certainly centuries later. And to do that, to be a practical physician, you need to practice on cadavers. The only ones that you could have then were um, executed criminals if, they're bought, if, they're, if their family allowed. So um, study, to study to be a physician was quite expensive then. You had to pay your way through. And um, fees were actually cheaper if you could supply your own um, material for study. So there were a lot of driving forces here that encouraged people to the uh, less reputable or those who had no other career to turn to, to actually become resurrectionists and dig up fresh corpses and get them put into barrels and brought over to London, to Edinburgh and to Glasgow for dissection. So Clifton House was built in the area that, where this was an issue. So it's got a very large wall around it, and that is for a very good reason, and that was to keep the grave robbers out. So they weren't actually grave robbers. They were body snatchers. There is a very important difference, which is quite illuminating to know. If you're a grave robber, you steal goods from a grave, and you could be put in prison for it and heavily fined. For stealing a body, they... Uh, the punishment was considerably less. So curiously, these um, body snatchers were very fastidious about only taking the body and none of the possessions. That um, lowered their risks of being put in prison. So they would leave behind all of the goods. They would take the body and the body alone and as quickly as possible, get it transported across because um, Fresh specimens were the only ones that were acceptable. So they took various measures. One of them was to build this very tall stone wall around the cemetery. They also had uh, guards, they had a little guardhouse, and they employed two gentlemen with a gun to guard the place. Uh, they also had a cage that they would put around coffins um, whenever they were put into the ground um, for maybe a week until the... Uh, the body was no longer of use to science, and then he would take that off. Or they would even allow, this wasn't very successful, Tom, they would allow friends and family to stay in overnight to guard the grave, but um, letting um, grieving families and friends spend the night in there, I'm sure with plenty of drink taken, ended up in too many um, unfortunate 
circumstances that we won't go into that um, they decided that they couldn't pursue that, that um, strategy anymore. So this all became irrelevant in the 1830s um, when the Anatomy Act was passed, which allowed people to gift their body to science. So it took a few years to develop that law, but that is, um, oh, I love, uh, there's a, a wonderful fellow guide, um, Lizzie, um, and, and I love her line whenever she's um, do, explaining this in the cemetery, because she says that, um, that because this law has passed, she is quite confident that eventually she will get to university. Mark, thank you very much for your time. Not at all, Tom. It was a pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information and to read articles related to today's episode, as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website, www.epidemic-belfast.com.